Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello, welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. As usual, I am Nate Swick. I like to lead off usually with some big birding news, and for North America this week, it doesn't come much bigger than Hurricane Hillary's arrival in Southern California. The storm spun up the west coast of Mexico, officially making landfall in Baja, California, about 200 miles south of San Diego on the 20th of August, and the two days following saw significant numbers of storm-driven birds in inland California, Arizona, and Nevada, including a couple first records, which we'll get to in the rare bird segment here in a bit. I don't want to spoil it. But for many birders, tropical storms are exciting because of the potential for storm waifs, typically ocean-going birds that are driven inland by the tropical storm's winds or birds entrained in the eye of the storm. I'm somewhat familiar with what to expect when a hurricane or a tropical storm like this comes ashore in the southeast, but the west coast is still a bit of a mystery box for residents there, too, as it was the first hurricane to make landfall in California since Nora in 1997, a practically prehistoric era when it comes to bird reporting. I guess he used phone trees? I I don't know. Anyway, because the northwest quadrant of this storm spent so much time over land, and that's typically the birdiest quadrant of these storms, my suspicion was that the true pelagic species would not be driven far inland, but the birds that are typically associated with wind, like terns, tropic birds, Frigate birds, maybe sulids, would be the most likely to turn up in places like Arizona or Nevada or parts north. And that mostly bore out both Cook's petrel and sooty shearwaters were seen, along with Sabin's goal, not too far from the shoreline. But there were a lot of black and common terns around as far east as southern Arizona. Magnificent frigate bird, red-billed tropic bird both turned up. On reservoirs in Arizona, in the Colorado River Basin, there were scattered least turns and red phalaropes, stuff that is generally near shore this time of year. But the big story of Hurricane Hillary had to be the storm petrels. They were scattered far and wide, and in some numbers, four species made up the majority of the phenomenon, black, least, leeches, which might include the recently split Townsend's and Ainley's storm petrel, though it may be impossible to determine, to determine that for sure, and wedge-rumped. Wedgerump storm petrel is an ABA code 4 species, so not super common on your regular Pacific pelagic. They are primarily a Galapagos Island breeder, but they are present in pretty significant numbers in the waters off Baja, which just happens to be the waters that Hillary spent a good deal of time churning around in. This is not the first time a tropical storm has dropped off wedge rump storm petrels on our doorstep. Hurricane Newton in 2016, which spun right up the Baja Peninsula and turned east into western Mexico, Arizona, New Mexico, brought several to Arizona as well. Not as many as this time, though, and wedgies were seen in sometimes large numbers in Southern California, Arizona, and Nevada, where they were a state first record, I guess, spoiler alert for the next segment. At the time when I am recording this earlier in the week, Nevada is as far as they have gone, but Utah isn't out of the question as usual. You'll hear about it here if that happens. 
On the show this week, we return to a conversation with Jenny Duberstein and Greg Neese about birding in the summer. Yes, it's August, which is, I guess, technically fall on the birding calendar, but the weather is not getting any cooler for at least a few more weeks, and the tips and tricks for finding birds and staying cool will never be more relevant. Secrets of summer birding after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of August, 2023. We talked already about Hurricane Hillary and the broad sense, which brought multiple records of wedge run stored petrol to Nevada, with a bird seen in Clark County in the southern tip of the state, but also as far north as Mineral County. These are the first and second records for that state. But it's also a great time of year for wandering swallow-tailed kites. We've already had several in the Great Lakes region this summer, with birds as far east as New York, Pennsylvania, and even Massachusetts. But a swallow-tailed kite seen in Charlotte County on Prince Edward Island is a first provincial record, one of fewer than 10 for Atlantic Canada, and the farthest east this bird has been recorded in the ABA area. Those are the recent highlights for the full list. Check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Hot, humid, buggy. How do you describe summer birding? For my part, it has always been the least exciting and the most taxing season for getting in the field. But I recognize that my experience is not the same as everyone else's. I am joined by two of my ABA colleagues, Jenny Duberstein and Greg Neese. We're going to get into summer birding, the hows, the whys, the what to look for. Jenny, Greg, great to see you again. How are you? I'm great. It's wonderful to see you both. Very, very good. Thank you. You know, we're we're from different parts of the of the country, of the ABA area. What is summer birding like where you are? Well, so I live um in the southwestern U.S. on Tohono O'odham, Pasquayahi lands, also called Tucson, Arizona, um, home of the Southeastern Arizona Birding Festival, which is happening right now. Yeah, um, that's right. Summer birding in Arizona is actually pretty amazing, especially later in the summer. Um, but if I think about, you know, what's it like, it depends on whether the monsoon has started mm-hmm. or not. Um, earlier in the summer, May, June, sometimes even early July, it can be just hot and dry. Um, and then it rains and we have what we call second spring and everything is blooming and lush and there's water and everybody says, oh, wait, maybe we can have one more brood of birds. And so we have lots of babies and nests and it's hot and it's really humid and muggy right now and buggy. Um, but I don't know. I love summer birding, especially later in the summer where I am. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why I asked you. <laughs> to be part of this uh, this mini panel, Jenny, because I know that your experience is completely different than than a lot of ours. And you know, summer birding in Arizona is that is that's when everyone goes to Arizona is that monsoon season in August and late July. Definitely. Well, I think I think Jenny that you your description is pretty similar to what we're experiencing. Chicago and the and the Mississippi Valley and the Western Great Lake. Um, although that's changing today, uh, there's a cold front coming through. But oh, for well, the last for the last month, I mean, July has just been brutal. It's been one of the hottest I can remember. The humidities. I mean, we're talking seventy seven degree yeah. dew points. It's like you go outside and it's like you're swimming in the air. Um, but summer birding, it's uh, you know here. And, and of course, you know, being in the mountains in the desert where you are, it's like there's there's the stratification and it's not really time delimited as much as it is altitude delimited. And then there's seasonal changes on top of that. 
And and here it's all timing and season. I mean, it's just you can set your watch by it. You know, for summer birding here, I think, you know, summer begins with the BBS routes. You know, that's the first three weeks of summer is BBS. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this like three week doldrum <laughs> where you're looking for odes and butterflies and yeah. and tiger beetles and and whatever. And then right around now, the fun begins because yeah. all the post-breeding wandering and just stuff like I just today, I got a, I got a new yard bird, um, a house wren. I've never in 20 years, I've huh. never seen a house wren in my yard. And there was one back there today, which was kind of weird. I mean, I would have expected it in May, but no, here it is the first <laughs> week of August. <laughs> yeah, it goes to show that the birds are definitely moving this time of year, even in places like in the east where it doesn't feel like there's a ton going on. Um, in, in terms of passerins, at least, you know, obviously the kind of late summer post-breeding dispersal wandering of wading birds and, and obviously the, the first bit of, uh, first bit of shorebird migration is always something that everyone likes to look forward to, uh, out here. But yeah, it's, it's similar where I am in, in North Carolina. It is hot. It is muggy. It is buggy in a lot of places, especially in the shade with mosquitoes. Um, it's, it's tough to get out. It's tough to get motivated to get out. although. Um, there's, there's certainly a lot of reasons to do so. So I would ask to, to you both, like, what, what do you like to look for in summer? I like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that what I look for in summer is any different than what I look for yeah, fair enough. any time of year. I, I'm looking for whatever I can see, but it's fun <laughs> to see, you know, baby birds, to hear baby mm-hmm. birds, to just see and hear things that you don't hear at other times of year. One of the cool things this time of year, particularly in southeastern Arizona is that we have this second spring effect and there's mm-hmm. birds breeding, but we also have migrants starting to come through. And so it's like a little bit of everything. Um, and it just, it feels kind of like, I don't know, like you're going through the Cracker Jack box looking for a surprise. You're not sure, you know, there's going to be a surprise somewhere, but you just never know what's going to show up. Yeah, and so absolutely. this, especially as you get towards the end of summer, that's kind of what it feels like to me. Yeah, I know uh, southeast Arizona is well known for having that like rarity season in in july and august as those things start you know i don't know exactly what drives it maybe maybe you both either of you can speak to that it's uh you know weather changes in the northern mexico kind of push these birds into the lowlands or into uh, the mountain the sky islands and the chiricahuas and the huachucas there's a lot of cool stuff a lot of cool potential um for birds in that part of the in that part of the world this time of year yeah, we don't have anything like that in the Great Lakes, but <laughs> <laughs> but what we do have, what we do have, um, I, I mean, the birding, the birding is interesting because I think juvenile birds. I mean, it's strictly speaking, juvenile plumage, like that mm-hmm. first form. Yeah, the real juvenile. When people talk about juvenile plumage, juvenile. they mean a lot yeah. of things, but this is like the real deal. <laughs> We're talking about yeah, the, the the very first. It's it's fascinating, and it's it's a neat challenge to to try to identify things as you know as common that we see as commonly mm-hmm. as song sparrow in juvenile plumage can really throw you off and then the adults things like shorebirds and 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 birds that are molting in summer they just look ratty and terrible and you know you're like <laughs> really making a case the, for summer birding this, there Greg. you get the first wave <laughs> you get the first wave of adult warblers coming through in august yeah. They look and rough. they just look horrible. <laughs> like they've been beat up and thrown into a fan and survived. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's yeah. just, and then like right after that, the juveniles come through just at the end of summer and they're all crisp, but they don't mm-hmm. look anything like 
the adults and and there I'm talking about shorebirds mostly. Yeah. I mean, you know, the difference between a beat up adult least sandpiper and a crisp fresh juvenile. Yeah. It's like they're two completely different species. It's it's so it's it's fun. That is one of the, you know, the late summer challenges of birding is kind of being able to recognize that and focusing on things like, you know, proportions and uh, behavior and things that aren't necessarily plumage related because, yeah, as you say, those birds can look really different. And and sometimes yeah. those juvenile birds look really nice. I'm thinking like Baird oh, Sandpiper yeah. in particular. Yeah. That's just a really clean, nice looking juvenile shorebird with the nice scallops and stuff like that. I, uh, like, I, I said least sandpiper, a bright, rusty, least yeah. sandpiper with fresh plumage. I mean, people every year, it's like, oh, little stint. No, 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 calm down, <laughs> calm down. Calm down. Yeah, but but then on the flip side of that, you know, I, I, all of us, I think, have a lot of experience. It's a common bird for for all three of us with one of the the rattiest end of summer birds that just confuses the hell out of everyone, and that's vesper sparrow. Mm. And because mm. vesper sparrows, they only molt once a year, and that's in September. And by the time they get to August, I mean they are just beat to hell and you, you know we get these pictures of we get these pictures of vesper sparrow it's like okay well if it doesn't look like anything at all it's a vesper sparrow <laughs> yeah that's interesting so when you are going out and birding is there a certain place you like to focus because when i think of summer birding around here uh it's mudflats mudflats all day long it's to hit those shorebirds and you know especially late in the summer sometimes we don't have a lot of rain at least until the hurricanes start moving through in the southeast. And so like we the the local reservoirs start drying up and you start seeing the the mud kind of extend, expand, expand, expand. And uh yeah, that's when you that's where you go see the birds. But it also means that it's typically gonna be a place that has a lot of bugs, typically gonna be a place where you're in the sunlight a lot. You're gonna be in the exposed sunlight. And so you have to sort of prepare. So where do you go and how do you sort of prepare for being out in the field in such a um such frequently difficult situations? I feel like, I mean, we go everywhere, right? It rains yeah. and all of a sudden there's water. Yeah, there's, so you go to the place yeah. where there's hard water. hard to know where to go. Yeah. And we definitely have bugs, um, but I think it's a different situation than maybe you're dealing with in the Southeast. It's, I mean, we also have humidity. But it's a, it's a dry heat. It, but it's <laughs> a dry say, heat. Yeah. Listen, it's not a dry heat this time of year. I went for a run yesterday morning and I think the dew point was 73. It was like the community was in the 90s. Yeah, it was 90%. It was, it's muggy right now, definitely. But I mean, like in terms of the heat, it's hot before the monsoon. It's hot after the monsoon. You get up early, you go out early, yeah. you try to finish yeah. early. Um, I think the canyons, especially when they get some water running in yeah. them, um, can be especially good. Um, I definitely like getting up into the mountains in the summer, partly to escape the heat, yeah, heat absolutely. Um, but to see what's what's showing up with water. Um, I follow the water more than anything. Summer birding for us, I think the, the word that could best describe it would be ephemeral because it's it's all dependent on the rain. I mean, if we're going to get anything that approaches monsoon weather, it's going to happen in August. And the water levels on the major rivers like the Mississippi and the Illinois really are key. I mean, sometimes you have miles of mudflats on the rivers, mm -hmm. and sometimes the water is just it's it's very high and you have no shorebird habitat at all. Yeah. Uh but when we do have shorebird habitat, it tends to be in places that require a death march. To get to it <laughs> uh, you, you've got yeah, it, it's like a minimum two mile hike to get 
you know, on an exposed dike with with chiggers and mosquitoes the size of helicopters to get out there and and get the shorebirds. And then you're dealing with heat shimmer and all of that. And then in Chicago, thunderstorms are something that that uh, the the birders who 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 bird the lakefront regularly and want to find things like wimbrels or maybe like I don't know a vagrant turn like we just had a royal turn downstate. Oh, cool. Um, thunderstorms are what knock those birds out of the air because they migrate yeah. high in the air during the day, but when a thunderstorm comes barreling through, you you know you go to the beach and just wait to see what puts down. Yeah, and they'll sit there during the rain, and then as soon as it stops, boop, they take off. That's interesting that you mentioned the the mudflat death march. I have a friend who has a <laughs> drone, and he actually brings it with him, and he flies it up to the back end of the reservoirs if he can see that to see if there's any good mudflats, and then flies it back to determine whether or not he's gonna he's gonna make the walk. <laughs> that's kind of brilliant. Yeah, I that's, thought so too. <laughs> that's 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 I'm okay. That's going in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. It is interesting. There is sort of like a perfect, a perfect mudflat height because if it gets too too low for too long, then the grass and the reeds start growing on the mudflat, and then you don't have any birds on there unless you want to walk through the reeds and maybe kick up a sora or something, um, which happens sometimes on on really dry years. Well, when the grass starts growing and it's just right, that's. I mean, that's probably it's not a coincidence. I'm sure when the buff-rested sandpipers start coming mm-hmm. through. And uh, we're we're very lucky to have have buffies here regularly. They're just wonderful That's little birds. There was something that you said, Greg. That um, I don't know if this would be a good segue for something else that I love Please. about, about summer birding. <laughs> but you were talking about seeing juveniles and being confused, but by, by their plumage. The main reason that I love summer birding is because well, I'm, I'm not I'm not confused. You're not, that one might be. <laughs> The possibility exists. But That's right. A less experienced bird. Sorry. I gotta. I gotta. I, I gotta. I gotta. I gotta keep the myth going for all those. What the, what's this bird group? People. That's right. Yeah. Keep the myth yeah. alive. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, what was I saying? Um, uh, juvenile birds. Seeing juvenile love, birds. The reason that I love um, summer birding so much is because it's bird camp season. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Both of you know I have. This was my 24th year uh, leading summer camps wow. for young birders. Yeah. Yeah. In Colorado and Arizona. And I've done it in a few other spots too, but mostly Colorado and Arizona. And one of the spots we go with Camp Colorado, which is one of the, the ABA's youth camps, is the Pawnee National Grassland. Mm-hmm. And the day before we go there, you know, we're kind of talking about, it's a big day. We leave at 4.30 in the morning and we drive for two and a half hours to get there. And, you know, we're talking about what to expect and it can be really hot. Uh, And these are some species that we hopefully will be seeing. And then we have to warn them. I say, we're going to go there. And somebody in this van, maybe multiple of you in this van will say, Jenny, there's a Sprague's Pippet on the road. I see a Sprague's (laughs) Pippet. And I will turn to you and I will say, no, that is a baby horned lark. And you will say, no, you're wrong. I'm sure it's a Sprague's Pippet. And so it's (laughs) cool to see the young birds. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's not, you're not going to see a Sprague's Pippet, but probably it's a baby horned lark. Yeah. Yeah. You know, horn, uh, juvenile horned larks, horned larks are one of the earliest breeding birds in North America, passerines in North America. I mean, in, in our neck of the woods in the upper Midwest, uh, they start breeding in March, like, like even early March, if there's no snow on the ground. I was going to say, there's usually snow on the ground up then. And they keep going. And they keep breeding. So you can have those juvenile birds anytime 
from like the end of March until now. And it doesn't matter where they are, what circumstance, it always throws whoever sees that. I mean, me, I look really different. What the heck is that thing? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um, We have a spot in my county, actually, that has uh, has breeding horn larks that are on my BBS route. You mentioned BBS routes. It's like the spot I always get my horn larks on my my BBS routes. And uh, yeah, they can throw you for sure. I mean, we administer What's This Bird, the Facebook group, and uh, there's usually a couple of them every year. I mean, horn larks are one of those birds that I think... I think they're really interesting because they're super, super common across the whole of the continent, but they're a really easy bird to miss because yep. they can be kind of mousy. And you have to Yeah, you, know, you have to hear them. Yeah. If yeah. you, I mean, if they're, they're, their song and their calls are so high-pitched and so mm-hmm. up there and tinkly, even when they're sitting on the ground, mm-hmm. it's just that the, their voice just kind of gets lost in the air oh in the wind yeah totally it just takes (laughs) such an effort to hear them yeah but once you cue you into it you you go to the pawnee in in mid to late july early august you have to beat them off with a stick but don't because they're protected (laughs) (laughs) they're they're a really nice bird actually they look great but uh, yeah yeah Yeah, i think it's one of those birds that i've always thought of as being in like the uh like a milestone bird for a birder like once you start recognizing horned larks in places, and Pippet is another one of those for the same yeah. reason, American Pippet. Yeah. Like once you start recognizing that flight call, like you're going to start finding them almost everywhere in sort of appropriate oh, yeah. habitat. Um, but in, but you know you won't notice it until you get I don't know your your skills get or you start noticing things at a certain way. Like everyone can get there, but it's like a it's it's like a it's like a little milestone for you if you start picking up horned larks on your bird checklist. <laughs> you're talking. We were talking a moment ago or a little bit ago about you know like summer wanderers and vagrants mm-hmm. um but one of the one of the birds that's really cool and i guess it, it, it's not so common where either of you guys are but is uh oh my god <laughs> i almost gave my age away um <laughs> is sedren i almost said short bill marsh red oh i swear my, i was yeah. that close <laughs> yeah no sedren sedrens are really cool because you know they come through in may with all the other birds Mm-hmm. They will be singing in proper habitat right where they should be right up until it's time to breed. And they go north up into Minnesota and southern Canada um, and they breed. But then they come back here in August and they breed again. Mm-hmm. And they have a second, they have a completely second breeding territory and time in, in August here in Illinois and Wisconsin, Iowa and so on, Indiana. And then I have read recently, and I'll have to double check this, that they go down to the South and do it a third time. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know in uh, Jenny's part of the world, that's a pretty common thing in the monsoon. Like there's a bunch of birds that are sort of known for that. Yellow-billed cuckoo being one of the, one of the more, more really? famous ones. But uh, yeah, I mean, cuckoos are just so weird. Yeah. Anyway, that's, a, that's another really great late summer bird because when the uh when the fall webworms at least where i am start coming out and you know late summer um sometimes the cuckoos when they start moving south will just stop where there's an infestation of pa- fall webworms and just have a second brood just like randomly and so you'll end up yeah. seeing these weird juvenile fledgling cuckoos with all dark bills which as you can see is kind of a pro- kind of a confusing yeah. species in the in the late summer and the fall and uh, but of course they have like little stubby little tails or like cuckoo pittas or something but um, yeah, yeah, that's another kind of classic late summer breeder that can that can cause problems 
identification problems if you're not if you're not ready for it. One more thing before we get off juveniles and 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 stuff like that is uh, summer ducks. We mm, have a lot of ducks. summering ducks. Well, yeah. eclipse adults and juveniles and and getting out of juvenile and mm-hmm. it just yeah we we have you know on the on the big rivers and and lakes we have these big mud flats that just get covered in piles of brown ducks that all look the same <laughs> and there might be five different species but they're all just brown they're ducks. all kind of tucked in and lumps yep. of muddy brown yeah <laughs> i was gonna say one of the other exciting things this is still sort of playing on the idea of you know one of the fun things about summer is that there are breeding birds with um the bird camps finding nests is just really cool and oh, yeah. really exciting. And we, during Camp Chiricahua this year, which is the, the event camp that I co-lead here in, in Arizona, I feel like every day we found another broadtail hummingbird nest somewhere. We hmm. found Columbia's Vireo, we found Cordier and Flycatchers. Um, in Camp Colorado, there were baby dippers and baby mountain plovers and, um, we didn't have baby ptarmigan this year, but we've seen ptarmigan with chicks. We've seen dusky grouse with chicks. We we found a, a we could hear woodpecker babies inside a tree, and we're like, oh, there's a woodpecker nest here, uh, probably hairy woodpecker. And so let's just stop and look at the hairy woodpecker. And we're looking and looking and looking, and the baby sticks its head out, and we're like, oh, that's an American three-toed woodpecker nest. Oh yeah, that's a, that's nice. a little bit, that's a little yeah. bit more interesting. Yeah, and so I mean, it's just it's cool. Like you're not going to see that if you're not birding yeah. in the summer, which yeah. is it's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to you know jump back to talking about camp a little bit. How do you prepare young birders for those sort of long days in the summer weather? Not necessarily for the birds you're going to see, but just for the conditions that you're going to experience. Yeah. So we um, have sort of a the night before and then the day of you know a talk this is what it's going to be like this is Mm -hmm. what we're planning um when we plan the trips themselves you know we try to make sure that there are rest stops or shade stops or um really good snacks to bring out at critical points in Mm -hmm. the in the day like everybody's energy is lagging all of a sudden oh this might be a time to bring out the special granola bars (laughs) <laughs> um having plenty of water always gotta have special granola bars that's uh special that's a good that's, that's a good like year round tip <laughs> for burning well, and with kids in general and with kids, yeah right <laughs> it's like the treats. venn diagram is uh yeah. but making sure i've got i've got have... some special granola bars that i bring with me <laughs> yeah i'm gonna have to cut no, that no. out greg <laughs> <laughs> making sure people have their hats making sure that yeah. i have extra hats i have extra sunscreen i have um you know just opportunities to rest to be excited about what we're seeing myself as and this is true (laughs) beyond kids but when you're leading a group your own enthusiasm is probably the most important thing that you can bring to the table and so making it sort of fun like okay we're gonna have a really long day tomorrow and it's gonna be amazing we're gonna be out there forever it's gonna be super hot and we're gonna see really (laughs) incredible stuff in spite of that um i think also helps yeah yeah frankly with bird camp like the kids want to be there they're excited to be there anyway so yeah that absolutely. helps a lot yeah yeah see when we when we lead when we lead trips out to like the shorebird you know do the shorebird marches we started off again you know by making sure that everybody's got plenty of water hats yeah. um bug spray all that stuff and and but you know plenty of water we always have some cold stuff back when you get back because yeah. Goes you know, but then we started off, you know, we started off by saying uh, sort of like the, the pep talk is, yeah, 
we're going to make you cry. <laughs> it's like, you're going <laughs> to. Uh, yeah, over, over promise. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. But when you get back to the car, we're not talking kids here, okay? <laughs> when you get back to the car, you're going to be dead. <laughs> Well, you know, if and if and if you oversell it that way, when they're not necessarily dead when they get back, they feel like they really exactly. accomplished something. <laughs> this is not a strategy that I use. <laughs> well, it's I mean, well, no, with the kids it would become a challenge, you know. Yeah. With, this is gonna, gonna be awful. With with fifty with fifty year olds, they're like, Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> so know your audience is the key here. <laughs> but you know, another another thing that I do a lot is demonstrate the behavior that I want to see in the kids. Hey, is everybody remembering to drink? I'm going to yeah. stop here and take my backpack off and get a drink. I always have extra snacks in my bag. Like when we yeah. leave the trailhead, everybody takes their snack and then they usually eat it within the first half hour. Yes. And then three hours later, they're hungry again. So I can pull out more snacks for them to eat. Or um, I, I'm terrible about remembering to drink enough water. And so yeah, I think we all are a little bit. Taking yeah. a pause helps. Yeah. And and you know I, I I we all joke, but I mean that is the most serious part of all of it. And and yeah. I think all of us have experienced you know the three hour tour that turns into mayhem. And I I had one of those um, experiences looking for an anhinga in far southern Illinois, and I mean it was just it was a hundred degrees. That's and a muggy it was, part of the world. It yeah. was unbelievably humid and. We started off on what was going to be just a short, maybe mile, mile and a half round trip um, to go look for this Anhinga. And we didn't find it where it was supposed to be. So we kept going. Long story short, it wound up being a 12 mile hike mm. in that heat and humidity. And we had no water. We had nothing. And when we got back to the car, we were both just almost dead and just drank. I think we drank. All the Gatorade and water, and then a six pack of Mike's Hard Lemonade that was in the trunk, I mean, just to, just to hydrate as much as possible with anything we had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do. I usually don't like to carry things like a backpack or, or all that stuff in the field, just generally because I don't like to be kind of weighed down. But um, in the summer, it's just super important to have you know a bottle of water, a couple bottles of water uh, with you. Um, so it's worth like thrown a little bit on there so having a good backpack that can carry that stuff that's not too heavy that's like breathes is a is a is a huge thing as well that i've uh that i mean you can stick water bottles in your cargo pockets in your you know true your shorts or whatever just make sure you've got the water well during camp so the thing that we make everybody bring on every trip and everybody invariably forgets some component of this but you know they have to have their backpack they have to have a Mm -hmm. full water bottle not half full water bottle they have to have a rain shell um, mm-hmm. because you never know when it's going to rain. Know. Sunscreen, yeah. your binoculars, something to write with, something to write on. And then anything beyond that is up to you. Um, but that's sort of the last thing they hear before they go to bed at night and the last thing they hear before we load up <laughs> in the vans in the morning. And then usually when we're about halfway to our destination, somebody will say, wait, my water bottle's not in my backpack. I'm, I'm sure I put it in there. <laughs> so so you've got a spare, hopefully. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah um, I try to go to places where it's not so hot, you know, elevation. It's not always an option for everybody, Greg. I don't know. There's not a ton of elevation in the upper Midwest, but yeah, uh, I'm just shaking my head here. Yeah. We got, <laughs> we got like 130 feet I was in, two hours from here. I was going to say, you know, we, I, we have the Southern Appalachians not too far away. It gets up to about, 
5,000, 6,000 feet, which isn't like huge, but it does cool down up there. It does drop about 10 to 15 degrees. And it is, you, you do notice the difference, especially when the humidity is not nearly as bad up there. Um, so getting to having that option and the birds tend to be a little more active, uh, in those places as well, because they're not as hot either. It's an option for people who have it. If you can get up, <laughs> go, go high. <laughs> you guys that have elevation, um, it's really cool. It's been a long, long time since I lived in the mountains. I lived in Colorado in the eighties on the Western slope, but other than that, I've lived here in Chicago my mm-hmm. whole life. But what we have, what we have is big weather. The weather, mm-hmm. the fronts that come barreling down the, the the prairie and the you know, it's it's amazing how everything can change in a matter of six hours, mm-hmm. and and including the birds. It's like those fronts. We're having one come through as I speak. The the temperature is dropping. It's been just ungodly hot for the last month, and it's changing today. And I'm sure that in the next thirty six hours, two days. There's going to be all kinds of reports of new migrants that haven't shown, mm-hmm. that haven't been seen yet, that are just post-breeders uh, yeah. moving on that that first front of the what what is just beginning now, the fall migration season. Yeah, getting up into into the mountains is definitely the way that <clears throat> excuse me, the way that I survived the summer down mm-hmm. here. It's just, and that's the wonderful thing about the Tucson area. There are mountains everywhere. You know, from my house in. A half hour, I can be at 8,000 feet, which is really lovely. And it's a little bit farther distance, you know, within an hour, I can be at Madera Canyon or so that helps. So when, when does summer end? Like, when did you put the end of, of summer? Because it does sort of sort of easily transition into fall. And, and we think of, you know, bird fall is different than meteorological fall because bird fall starts in, well, heck, it starts in like late June for the most part when birds start moving. But these sort of tips that we're providing, you know, they're useful into the fall. I mean, it, it, it usually is early October when things really start to cool down here where I am. What does it look like where you are when things start officially transitioning to, to, to the fall season? I mean, I feel like it's already, it's not transitioning to fall yet, but it's, you know, the high temperatures the last few days mm-hmm. have been in the upper 90s which sounds Ooh. really cool like anything below 100 here to me I'm like oh it's cool today I think I'll wear long sleeves um I mean it's usually Halloween is the the date yeah. for me you know the end of October before you can reliably count on not having absurdly hot temperatures certainly like things like you know I don't know when the yellow billed cuckoos leave and like mid to late September I feel like yeah. that's sort of like a key transition point between sort of the the resident and summer breeders and um, really starting to see things moving through. Yeah, I don't know if the idea of of meteorological seasons was hatched here in the Midwest, but um, it it it's it's pretty true almost to the day, but certainly to the week that you know our spring is March, April, May. Summer is June, July, August. Then fall is September, October, November, and winter is December, January, February. And that it's just that's just the way it is. The first wave of migrants is starting now, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's still summer and there's still birds breeding. Yeah. And the, the first the first bunch of migrants are coming through, but that's that doesn't change the fact that it's still summer. Yeah. I've had my head uh into to doing stuff, building stuff on the ABA website for for the last well my full-time job but so i can't remember this so pardon me for for not 
remembering um, uh, these um, the, these radio telemetry stations that are being put up all of those modus modus the mm-hmm. modus yep yeah that are tracking uh, now smaller birds in larger numbers than ever yep. before and some some of the things that we're learning about bird movements especially this time of year like the one that blew my mind was fairly recently discovered about Kirtland's warblers do you know what I'm talking about uh remind me okay so Maybe I yeah do. i mean for the for the <laughs> audience a lot of cool stuff about kirtland's warblers <laughs> there, there are yeah i mean kirtland's warblers is, is they breed in in a very small area right. in michigan and kind of a, adjacent wisconsin um and now just very little into canada but then they just kind of disappear in august mm-hmm. and it was assumed that they went sort of just dissipated and started on their way to the Bahamas. But it was discovered like the whole population just kind of gets up and moves to Ontario, like north of Ottawa, hmm. um, and just stays there for a month and then flies south. <laughs> huh. Huh. I mean, it's just, it's just, we, we just learn stuff like that. And, and uh, the summer movements of birds, you know, we, we think we know stuff like that and we just we don't yeah i think i think that that's that's absolutely true and you know i i know that they've put i i'm reminded of a study that some i think there were some school kids in um in southeastern north carolina did where they they were partnering with someone who put some trackers on great egrets great egret is sort of in a lot of parts of the country this kind of ubiquitous late summer bird they move right widely and they just kind of turn up and then they're gone or there's big concentrations of them but anyway they were trying to track like where these birds from the Wilmington area were were going. Some of them were staying kind of close to home, but some of them were going like to the Southern Caribbean and up the coast and just like these crazy long distances that these birds are are taking. But because it's a great egret and you don't think too much about it, you don't really think about where these birds are going because they're they're like literally everywhere. So what the individuals are doing is is not obvious. But uh, they're doing some really, really cool stuff. And I think a lot, there's a lot of birds out there that are doing these neat late summer movements that we are sort of unaware of. And maybe we only see when it's like a really unusual species, like rosy at Spoonbill or, or something like right. that. But there's a lot of that stuff going on. Yeah, it's interesting to me sometimes how much we think we know and yeah. we really know very little. And yeah. the things that we know are our interpretation of what we see, which may right. have very little to do with what's actually happening so it's, yeah. it's fascinating yeah yeah and then summers in some ways is this sort of mysterious season you know because we don't really think of birds moving that much in it or maybe people just aren't out and they should be so i hope that the listeners out there find some some tips uh you know so there's not a lot of summer left but there's still you know next year's coming and it's gonna be it's gonna be a hot one again before we even know it um but thank you, Greg and Jenny, for joining me to chat about summer birding. It's always a pleasure to, ch- to talk with you guys. Right on. Good talking to you guys. Thanks for the invitation. And I will say this. We are making plans for bird camp for 2022. Absolutely. And I'm actually making plans for 2023 right now as we speak. So if you or a young birder age 13 to 18 is interested in coming to Colorado or Delaware or any one of a number of other young birder camps um, around the country, um, get in touch. Happy to help facilitate that. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy some good yeah, summer birding. Yeah, they sell out fast. 
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Beauty of Books, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Derek Bruff of Franklin, Tennessee, and Deirdre Kalanen of Denver, Colorado, both of whom joined the ABA and noted this podcast as their reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA and thanks for your support. Technical production is by John Lowry, who is such a fan of storm birding that he looks at those early maps of tropical storms and calls the resulting predicted path the cone of uncertainty. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon with help from Greg Neese, who noted that the Hillary storm surge was relatively minor, but her storm petrol surge was potentially historic. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association on Blue Sky. We are ABA birds. For most meteorologists, a tropical depression is a tropical cyclone with maximum sustained winds of 38 miles per hour. But for birders, it's when the storm blows a tree down across your driveway and you can't go chase the hurricane-blown birds. Questions, comments could come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Bird like Tom, and we'll see you next week.